Well, out of curiosity, how many of you have fasted? Put your hand up nice and high. And I realize this passage just told us to be secretive and quiet about that, but this isn't what Jesus is meaning. That I just, out of curiosity, how many of you have tried fasting? Put your hand up nice and high. Okay, many of us, not all of us. How many of you just hearing about fasting makes you hangry? How many of you don't know what hangry is? Hangry is the type of hanger that you get when you're hungry. It's hangry. Well, I myself get very hangry when I fast. And so this morning, we're going to talk about fasting. So what Jesus dives into here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been taking us through different expectations that he has for his people, for his followers. And the last two weeks, we've looked at giving to the needy. This is in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, use the Pew Bible, page 811. We're going to be in there this morning. So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has talked about giving to the needy in verses 1 through 4. We talked about that two weeks ago, and then last week he talked about prayer, and he gave us the Lord's Prayer, verses uh, 5 through 15. Now, those two spiritual practices are very common spiritual practices, right? I mean, you can be around church for, for a long time or a very short period of time, and surely you've heard people say that a good spiritual discipline to do, a good spiritual practice is to give to the needy and to pray. But fasting, what about fasting? We don't hear a whole lot about that in the church, do we? We don't talk a whole lot about that, even though Jesus ties it, ties it right here in these three common basic spiritual disciplines, giving to, the needy, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Seems like these are three core spiritual disciplines, core spiritual practices for Jesus and his followers, and yet we hear very little about fasting in the American church. At least I have heard very little about it. I, I had some experiences with it growing up, but we haven't talked about it as a church yet, and I've been pastoring some iteration of this church for about five years now, and we've never preached on fasting. And I've been wrestling with myself this week, trying to figure out why that is, and, and doing some research and study. I think one of the reasons we don't hear a whole lot about fasting, just to clear it up, if you don't know what fasting is, it means abstaining from food for a period of time for spiritual reasons. That's what we mean when we say fasting. It doesn't mean running extremely fast, although fast means that. We are talking about abstaining from food for a period of time for a spiritual purpose. And I think the reason that we don't hear a lot about that in the American church is that it has a bad reputation. It's kind of associated, in American evangelicalism anyway, it's been associated with legalism or Catholicism. I mean, I've heard many people say, like, as Lent season rolls around and people talk about giving something up or fasting from something as we prepare for Easter, I hear many people in American evangelicalism in the Protestant movement saying, well, why would we fast? We're not, we're not Catholic. And that's a legalistic practice. We're not Catholic and it's legalistic. And so it kind of has a bad reputation because in American Christianity, it's primarily, at least historically for the last hundred years or so, it's primarily been practiced by Catholics, and so Protestants are like, well, that's just a Catholic practice, not something that we do. Or it's, it's done by very legalistic Christians who think that fasting will, will um, get them more of God or something, or, or they just do it as a thing to check off. It's a legalistic thing. And that's one of the reasons why we don't talk a lot about it. Another reason why we don't talk about it a lot is because pastors don't do it. Guilty. I don't have, I haven't had a common practice of fasting. And so something that you are not in the flow of doing, something that you're not considering, something that you're not studying in scripture, you typically don't preach on, don't teach on, don't expect the church to practice. That's one of the strengths of going through scripture. The way that we are is now we are forced to deal with it. 
Not because it's something that I love to talk about or because it's something that I love to do, but it's because it's something that Jesus taught on. And so now we run smack dab into Jesus' teaching on fasting and what are we going to do about it. And I think another reason why we don't hear a lot about fasting in our culture is because we live in a culture of indulgence, access, and entitlement. Right? The American dream, the American way, the, the pursuit of life, liberty, and what? Happiness. Happiness. We live in a culture of indulgence, excess, and entitlement. When, when our culture is built on this value that you are entitled to happiness, well, why would we talk about fasting? Richard Foster, a, a church leader who has done a lot of writing on spiritual disciplines, says about our culture, if we don't have three meals every day with snacks in between, we think we're on the verge of starvation. Right? We get hangry if we don't have our snacks in between our meals. Well, this morning we're going to dive into fasting and look at what Jesus says about fasting. This passage is very simple. Here he basically just says, he assumes that we will fast. Look, look at it, verse 16. When you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. Jesus says when you fast. And then he gives us a way to do it. He says do it in secrecy. Don't, don't do it, and this isn't, He's not saying never let anybody know when you fast. In fact, it's great to fast with a community. But he's saying don't do it out in public. Don't do it for, for public appraise, for, for public praise, for approval, for pats on the back. That's what he said about praying. Last week he said pray in private. That's what he said about giving, give anonymously, give secretly. He's, he's, trying to, he's trying to get his followers to understand that our spiritual discipline, our spiritual practice is for fostering a life of intimacy with him, not impressing others or, or checking off religious, a religious to-do list. And so this morning we're going to dive into fasting and kind of do a big picture look at fasting. Here's the big idea this morning. Fasting helps free us from feeling entitled and living enslaved. Fasting helps to free us from feeling entitled and living enslaved. And it's my conviction that in our culture, we are far more entitled and enslaved than we realize. We need to pause. We need to give some serious consideration. We need to check our hearts. We need to consider the things that, that may be good gifts from God that we have now felt entitled to. Now, I know this passage is talking about kind of secrecy in fasting, right? And, and not sharing your fasting with others to get approval or praise. Um, so I'm not sharing with you anything that I'm doing for approval or praise, but I do want to let you know just in a way of experience that I've been trying to fast from different things over the last couple weeks, and, and it has taught me that I am so entitled and I'm so enslaved. I mean, I just, I just feel like I'm entitled to the things that I want. And, and, and as I give up things, as I fast from things, and then I have this internal battle with myself, like I want it, I want it, I want it, I'm realizing that my entitlement, that it, God's given us many good gifts here in our culture, many good things. And, and and Jesus, I don't think, expects us to fast perpetually forever. He's given us the gift of coffee and food and friends and drink for our good as means of worship. However, as I've tried giving different things up, I've realized that I've taken his gifts for granted 
and the gifts that he has given me, I have become entitled to. I think they're my right. And then when I try and give it up, I feel that, that actually it has its grips on me. I'm enslaved by these good gifts. And so I'm sharing with you not any particularities of what I've been fasting, but just that I've been trying to practice a discipline of fasting and giving up different things over the last couple weeks, and this is what it has taught me. That when we fast, it helps. First of all, it helps, to us, it helps to reveal and identify that we are entitled and what we're entitled to and what we're enslaved by. But as we do it, it begins to free us of those things. It begins to free us to walk in the ways of Jesus, to follow Jesus, to experience more and more of him, to have a deeper intimacy with him, to have a closer connection with him, to hear his voice, to experience his spirit in a more powerful, more meaningful way. Isn't that what you want, church? It's what I want for us. I hope that's why we gather together on Sunday mornings is because we want more of Jesus. And so I think Jesus gives us this practice as a way to get more of him, to experience more of him, to feast on him rather than just his gifts. And so a little, little bit of history of fasting. What do we know about fasting? Well, the first fast, sort of, I mean, it wasn't really a traditional fast, but it's interesting to think that the first prohibition from food was in Genesis, chapter 1, 2, and 3, Right? God created Adam and Eve, he created the garden, he put everything in the garden for their enjoyment, for their good. This was all a gift created by God for Adam and Eve, for them to enjoy, except for that one tree, right? The, the first fast in the history of the world was really just a prohibition for Adam and Eve not to eat from that one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and they felt entitled to God's creation, and they ate of that one fruit that God said you shouldn't eat of, and then they became enslaved to their own impulses, to their own flesh, to their own desire, to the voice of the serpent. That's the history, the very first example of fasting. And from there it goes on throughout the Old Testament. God originated fasting, really kind of the traditional practice that we're familiar with. It originated with God commanding the Israelites to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement, this is in Leviticus chapter 16. You can read about that later if you'd like to. God commanded Israel to fast on that one day in, in um, kind of to feel the weight of their sin, but then to feel the joy of forgiveness. The Day of Atonement was when sacrifices was made on their behalf. And then as the Old Testament develops, as the history of Israel develops, they, they, their leaders would call for additional days of fast on top of just the Day of Atonement. Um, usually they would tie fasting into like a, a kind of, they, they, the leaders of Israel would want to help foster a heart of repentance and kind of a corporate call to repentance and to worship. And so if they were going into war, if they were being oppressed, if, if things weren't going well, they would call the people together, they would repent of their sins and they would fast, they would give up food and seek God as a way of repenting, as a way of, of kind of realigning their hearts towards God. Other nations, then, other nations and other religions picked this practice up and started doing it. And so you have many different nations, many different religions that practice fasting. I mean, commonly, it's more common among Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims during Ramadan than it is among the average American Christian anyway. 
Christians around the world practice fasting typically more than American evangelical Christians, but it's more prominent among other religions. Jesus himself, so that's kind of the Old Testament and the worldwide history of fasting. Now let's bring it back to the New Testament. What does Jesus himself teach about fasting? Well, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, when you fast, Jesus assumes it's something that his followers are doing. It's something that they did in the Old Testament, and it's something that in his religious culture they were doing, and he just assumes his followers are going to fast. He makes that assumption, when you fast. Jesus himself fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4, which we looked at a couple months ago. Jesus, as an example, not just as an example, but looking at him as an example, he went out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. The disciples, if you read through the book of Acts, after Jesus ascended back into heaven, the disciples regularly fasted. When they appointed leaders in their churches, when they sent out church planters and missionaries, they they would call the church together and they would have times of prayer and worship and fasting And it's often out of this fasting, out of this intentional giving something up to be freed from what they're entitled to and enslaved by, God would speak loud and clear. God would show them who to send out, who to appoint as missionaries, pastors, elders. He would show them what to do. Fasting was very prominent among most of the church leaders. If you study through church history, most of the church leaders fasted semi-regularly. And then it's kind of within the last hundred years or so in American evangelicalism where fasting hasn't been all that prominent. Um, Also, it's not just a spiritual activity. It's also, there's scientists that are kind of jumping onto this idea of fasting as far as it being a good thing for your body. And there's a couple documentaries on Amazon. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch a couple documentaries that are really fascinating to watch about how the science of fasting works and what it does to your body and how it can help heal some things in your body and how it can kind of reset your body and cleanse some things. And so I think we'll get into this, but, but what we, I, I think what we often do is we divorce kind of the spiritual and the physical, right? And so we think about fasting either as a spiritual discipline, a spiritual practice, Or it's something that people do for health reasons. But God isn't that way. He doesn't divorce the spiritual and the physical. In fact, God marries the two. It's all interconnected and interrelated. And so as scientists and people who study the body are starting to find health benefits from periodic fasting, it's actually revealing a truth that God has created, that God is connecting our minds, our bodies, and our soul. Fasting is good for us, not spiritually, not just because it helps to free us from feeling entitled and being enslaved, but because it actually is good for our physical bodies as well, and it can help us in a myriad of ways. So what exactly is fasting? Well, fasting is the discipline of giving something up, primarily food, for a period of time to replace busyness with slowness and worldliness with righteousness. Food is primary. Now, I say this because in our day and age, typically, if you do talk to somebody who's doing some kind of fast, and maybe they're doing it for Lent, um, sometimes it's food, maybe it's like giving up meat on a Friday, but typically it's like social media or alcohol or caffeine or sugar or something like that, right? Now, I think that's good. We should fast from different things that we feel entitled to and then enslaved by, 
But biblically and historically, fasting is primarily something, it's primarily abstaining from food for a period of time. It's giving up primarily food for a period of time to replace busyness with slowness and worldliness with righteousness. Busyness with slowness. Here's kind of the history of fasting is it took them forever to prepare meals, right? They didn't have microwaves. They didn't have grocery stores. They didn't have convenience stores with hot pockets where you could grab the hot pocket on your way home, throw it in the microwave. Nobody should do that anyway. But they didn't, they didn't have those kind of conveniences. So they had to go out, they had to hunt, they had to gather, they had to prepare, they had to make a fire to boil the pot of water, to cook all their things in. It took a long time. Their preparation for meals were involved. And so part of fasting from food, historically, has been to set aside all of the time invested on preparing meals and to focus on the Lord to spend time in prayer and communion with God, to spend time studying and thinking and praying and, and just being with God. That's what I mean by giving up something, primarily food, for a period of time to replace busyness with slowness. It was a way to just slow down. In our culture, maybe that is giving up media for a while. Maybe that is turning off the news from 9 to 10 and just being quiet and slow, spending time in prayer. Maybe that is not checking Instagram for a week. Can you imagine? What? Are you kidding me? I'm entitled to that. Maybe it's just getting rid of something that fills your life with constant busyness to the point where you realize, I'm bored. I want to look at my phone so bad. Nope, I'm going to sit here bored and quiet. And just maybe in that place, Replacing your busyness with slowness, just maybe in that place, God will speak something profound and powerful to you. And maybe not. Maybe you'll just sit there bored. Who knows? But you'll never know if you don't try. Okay? So it's primarily, it's giving up something to replace busyness with slowness and then worldliness with godliness. Worldliness with godliness. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is what John, one of the apostles who actually was here at the Sermon of the Mount, he heard this teaching from Jesus. He's called by Jesus to be a fisher of men in Matthew chapter 4, and so he's following Jesus. He heard this teaching. Later on, after Jesus ascends back into heaven, John writes this book, and listen to what he says. He instructs Jesus' followers, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, this idea of fasting, it has to do with replacing this worldliness, which John talked about, with righteousness. Worldliness is something that the desires of the flesh is what John said here in this passage. Now, our flesh isn't bad, right? We, we don't have to crucify our flesh in a sense. Flesh created matter is, is neutral. It's created by God. It can be used for good or it can be used for bad. So when John writes about the desires of flesh here, he's not saying the basic desire that after, I mean, yes, fasting is a good thing, and we'll talk about limits of fasting and, and what fasting actually practically looks like, but at some point we have to eat, right? 
We are bound by the needs of our bodies, and we have to eat, we have to drink water. You will die very quickly if you try and fast from water for too long. And you can only go for so long without food. And so your body needs food and water. Our flesh desires certain things that we actually need. But when John talks about the flesh, he's talking about kind of the the heart, the mind, the will, the soul, kind of the makeup of a human being. It's not just the body. It's not just the mind. It's not just the heart. It's not just the soul. It's kind of all of these things together. And the desires of the flesh are, are, it's, it's what was skewed when Adam and Eve decided to eat of the forbidden fruit. When they took fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now all of a sudden flesh is corrupted and the desires of our flesh are for what we want, not for what is actually good for us. Sigmund Freud talked about the pleasure principle. In psychology, they call it the pleasure principle. It's the natural bend of all humankind to pursue things that they want that would help numb their pain and would help them to, to feel pleasure or to just numb their pain. That's the desire of the flesh is, I'm stressed out, let me drink. I'm stressed out, let me binge watch Netflix. I'm stressed, stressed out or, or I have no energy for this day, give me, give me a gallon of coffee with some espresso shots on the side. That's, that's what the desire of the flesh is. It's how we try and combat our, our physical limitations with physical things. The desire of the flesh, it's, oh, I'm stressed out, let me look at pornography because that'll get my mind off my stress. I'm stressed out, let me just go paint for hours and never pray and never seek God. So this is worldliness. Fasting helps us to replace worldliness with righteousness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this definition of fasting, why do we fast? It's to replace worldliness with righteousness. We understand now what worldliness is. It's these these desires of our flesh, these cravings, these things that, that our flesh wants to try and numb the pain without actually seeking God. It's like a, putting a Band-Aid on an issue. And here, discipline is... I love how the writer of Hebrews explains discipline. And I think fasting is a discipline. Fasting is a discipline. It's something that we have to discipline ourselves to do. The writer of Hebrews says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's like the direct opposite of the pleasure principle, right? The pleasure principle is instant gratification. I want something, I want it now. If it's food, if it's drink, if it's sex, I want it and I want it now. And it's going to help me. And it does help you for a brief moment. But then you feel guilt, you feel shame. And it doesn't actually fan into flame the spiritual soul inside of you. It just numbs the, the desires of your flesh for a brief, fleeting moment. So the writer of Hebrews says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. If fasting is a discipline, it's painful, is it not? Those of you who have tried fasting, you know how painful fasting can be. It's just awful. It makes you hangry, at least for a moment. But later, it produces a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you talk to somebody who's practiced the discipline of fasting, who has gotten through that, that hangry moment, they'll say, oh, it's produced 
so much righteousness. I have seen this discipline of fasting allow me to to experience God more intimately, more closely. I'm able to hear his voice more clearly. An example of this is David Wilkerson, who, who founded Teen Challenge. How many of you know what Teen Challenge is? Put your hand up nice and high. They go around and do different choirs at churches. It's a great ministry that helps addicts find recovery in Jesus Christ. David Wilkerson decided to fast from late-night television for a period of time. And he just realized that he, he was at this point in his life where he was just spending his evenings watching TV. I don't know if it was Fox News. I don't know if it was CNN News. I don't know if it was the local news. I don't know if it was David Letterman or Johnny Carson. That was probably the guy back then. It was in the 70s. And he decided that I don't think this is producing in me a harvest of righteousness. I don't think my, my nightly routine of just binge-watching TV is producing, in, and he binge-watched before we had Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. He just binge-watched whatever was on TV. Some of you are there. And he decided he was going to fast from watching his nightly TV programs. And over a period of time, in fasting, in giving that up, God put on David Wilkerson's heart and, and, and through an experience with a gang member, this opportunity to create a ministry that was helping addicts. Teen Challenge exists now all over the United States because Dave Wilkerson practiced the discipline of fasting and it produced a harvest of righteousness. I think that incredible ministry which has met so many people with Jesus Christ and has freed so many people from addiction may not have started had he continued to spend his evening from nine on on his couch watching his TV. He didn't give up his TV forever. He fasted for a period of time and God gave him this vision for this needed ministry. And so that's kind of the, the, the why we fast or what fasting really means or what fasting looks like. And again, Jesus assumes it. So let's talk a little bit about how fasting is done. And Jesus instructs his followers to fast in secrecy for the purpose of fostering personal intimacy with God rather than public praise from others. That's very simple in this passage. Like, this passage in Matthew chapter 6 is so simple. We have to do more of a big picture teaching on fasting because this passage is so simple, right? I mean, if I was going to preach just this passage and not do a big picture thing on fasting, I'd be here for like 30 seconds, and some of you would probably prefer that. But, but I mean, here's what Jesus says. He just says, when you fast... Again, it's assumed by him, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Very simple. Jesus is saying, when you fast. The the primary way to fast is to build this deep, intimacy with God. It's to commune with him. It's not to impress others. It's not to to show off. It's not to get others to think that you are more spiritually inclined, that you have more spiritual answers, that you are the one who should be followed or listened to. That's all that Jesus teaches. And I think as we go on, thinking about fasting, it's an assumption that Jesus makes, right? I mean, I think that's the more fascinating thing in this passage. Jesus teaches us not to do it for public praise, just like giving, just like prayer. 
I don't think that's the common tension in our culture, really. I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to a church, whether it was here or a different church, and there were people, like, publicly expressing how much they gave to the poor. Or just, like, praying, and you could really tell that they wanted pats on the back for their prayer. Or wearing, like, a shirt, I am fasting, how good am I? Tell me how great I am. Pat me on the... Like, I just don't think that's the reality of our culture. It was the reality of their culture. The hypocrites, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would, they would fast every... Um, I'm going to check my notes to make sure I have the days right. Every Monday and Thursday. They would fast every Monday and Thursday. And these happened to be market days where people would come to Jerusalem to get all of their supplies. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would specifically fast on those two days so that people could see them fasting and they would actually dirty up their faces. They would try to make themselves look miserable and hangry so that as people came to Jerusalem to pick up their supplies on market day, they would be like, oh, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the holy ones. They, they set the rules. They make the law because they fast. And so therefore, they must have this close connection to God. And so that was the culture there. And and ironically, the early church, they started fasting then on Wednesdays and Fridays because they didn't want to be like the Pharisees who fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. The Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays to show off and the disciples would go on Wednesdays and Fridays so that they were different than the Pharisees. And so that's this passage. There, we've, we've taught that passage. But I think the fascinating thing here is Jesus' assumption about fasting. And how rare this practice is in our culture, in our churches, in my own practice, up until I had to preach it. And I was like, I better try practicing what I preach. And I don't know, hopefully I, I don't just abandon this practice altogether now that I preach it. Like, yep, check that off and move on. But I want to share with you a few things that I've experienced as I've been fasting, as I've been wrestling through this passage in this text. What does fasting do? Well, the first one, it helps to free you from feeling entitled and living enslaved. I've already talked a little bit about this, but I would encourage us as a church to begin thinking through fasting. What does that look like for you? Does that mean you do one, start with just doing a meal. Skip a breakfast, skip a lunch, skip a dinner, and use that time to intentionally pray and seek God and, or, or give up some kind of thing that you just love. Coffee, alcohol, sugar, Netflix, Fox News, CNN. Try giving it up for a couple nights and see how you start to feel. Even as I say that, some of you are like, no, that's not, no, I'm not giving that up. Are you entitled? I, I, I can tell you from experience that as we start trying this practice, we start to become aware of the things that we've become entitled to. And not just that we're entitled to, but we're actually enslaved by those things. I mean, if you feel this inner turmoil, this inner war going on, and like, no way, how dare you take that from me? You've become enslaved by something other than God. And so fasting very simply, very easily, very clearly will help reveal to you what you feel entitled to and what you've then become enslaved by. Secondly, fasting helps to starve the flesh and to feed the spirit. I borrow this phrase from a pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer. He has a great sermon on this topic by that title, um, 
that title right there. I just stole the title of his sermon and put it in as a point. And this is so true. Fasting helps starve the flesh and feed the spirit. And, and starve the flesh not in a way where like we're actually starving our physical bodies. And, and people with eating disorders and stuff, you need to be careful about fasting. You need to talk to somebody. We need to, this is why fasting can't be totally in secrecy. Like we should do it in community with others praying for us, helping us walk through this. But fasting, it helps to starve the flesh, not, not just the physical flesh, but that intertwined, that, that mind, heart, body, soul, all of that that is broken in me. Fasting helps to starve that as it feeds my spiritual life. It helps to, it helps to reveal to me if I'm trusting more in created matter, more in the tangible things that I can see, that I can taste, that I can touch, that I can feel, or whether I'm trusting in God, the unseen. Faith is believing in what we don't see. It's the assurance of things hoped for. And so fasting helps to build your faith as it starves your flesh, your cravings for for instant gratification, your pleasure-seeking side. It helps to starve that. And in starvation, you begin to feast on whatever you have left over. Like if you, if you starve your body for too long, your body will start to eat your fat cells, right? In the same way, if we, if we starve ourselves from media, from sugar, from alcohol, from food, from sex, whatever it is that you are medicating your body with, that you are filling yourself up on, if you start to starve that, your soul will start to feed your spirit will be fed in a new way that you've never experienced before. Thirdly, fasting helps to align your mind, body, and soul. So kind of tied to fasting helps to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. It helps to align your mind, your body, and your soul. Again, we're not divided creatures. We're not physical and spiritual. We're physical and spiritual. And so when you fast, it, it helps to actually sync all of these things up in your body, in your soul, in your mind, in your spirit. They all begin to talk to one another. They begin to calibrate in a way where you experience God to a new, at a new level. You, you, begin to, you begin to not medicate your pain with food, but actually all of a sudden you, you start to realize, well, why do I feel so stressed out and I want to run to food? What's the source of my stress? Is food actually going to fix anything? God, why, why am I so angry that I can't have food? Why am I so angry that I, that I can't drink coffee? Why am I so angry? Why don't I trust you? Why do I just want to be happy rather than holy? And that's one of the things that I've learned, that, that fasting really helps to reveal if I'm, if I'm more hungry for holiness, being like Jesus, or for just momentary happiness. And you start taking things away and you start to realize really quickly whether or not you, you actually want to be like Jesus and follow him and to have a fruitful, abundant life, or if you just want to be happy. And so fasting helps to align all of these things. Fourth, fasting helps reveal if your satisfaction is found in God or his gifts. These are all kind of interrelated, but a little bit unique. I think fasting helps us to actually see if, if our satisfaction is found in God. I mean, this, this is what I do with coffee. Like, I love coffee. 
oh, I drink so much coffee. And in giving coffee up for a period of time, coffee is a good gift. Food is a good gift. Friends are a good gift. Family is a good gift. Sex is a good gift. These things are good gifts for us, most of them. But, but when the gift becomes greater than the giver, it becomes idolatry. And so coffee, coffee's a great gift. Coffee's a great gift. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> but when I've given it up, I, I've had to, I've, like, for the first couple days, I had to realize, like, I, I, here's my morning routine. I get up early, I brew some coffee, I sit in a chair, I read my Bible, some books, and I drink my coffee, and it's glorious. Like, just the most beautiful moment of my day. And then I started wrestling through this idea of fasting and decided I should, you know, at least for a period of time, give up some coffee. And I'm like, well, but then my morning quiet time isn't going to be as good. And, like, honestly, I had to wrestle with that. Like, is my morning quiet time not going to be as good because I don't have a cup of burnt something in my hand? And, and honestly, in my soul, I felt like it wasn't because God's good gift of coffee had become at least equal, if not greater, than God himself. And so I, held, I, I heard God's voice saying, Andrew, am I enough? Like, can you just get up and sit in a chair with me? Do you have to have the aid of that coffee in your hand? And, and God is so gracious, and he's like, I'm not condemning the coffee in your hand, like, Enjoy that for the rest of your life for all I care. That'll, that's great. That helps you commune with me. Enjoy that. But let's try giving it up for a couple days to see if I actually am enough. And it's been this glorious journey of wrestling through that. Because honestly, before doing that, in like the initial reaction in my own heart was, yeah, God, you're enough, but I'll take the coffee as well. Like, I, I kind of need you both. And so God's been challenging me and working me over on that. And, and I can tell you, it's just that it's a joyful experience to let God your Father discipline you and grow you up so that you produce a harvest of righteousness. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to mention that fasting does is it helps us to focus on the ultimate feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we fast from food here and now, it reminds us that that there is a day coming where Jesus will be reunited with his people physically. We will be in his presence. Jesus will be there with us at a table, and there will be this massive feast that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you start to give up food and, and try doing some fasting here and now and you feel hungry, this will help remind you that there's going to come a day where I'm going to feast with the King of kings, with the Lord of lords, for all of eternity, with the finest food and the best wine that I could ever imagine. And this is what I'm living for. I'm living for a greater meal in the future. Follow a couple passages with me here to kind of see this point play out. In Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, and Jesus with his disciples, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Okay, so John the Baptist, there were people following John the Baptist before Jesus was fully on the scene and before, he was, before John the Baptist said, he must become greater and I must become least, people were following John the Baptist. So John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? 
but your disciples do not. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And Jesus' point here is that right now, Jesus and, and the disciples, he's teaching them when you fast, here's how you are to fast. But he's also telling the disciples, like, right now is not a time for mourning and lamenting over, over sin. And, and it's not a time for this type of repentance. It's a time to enjoy relationship and fellowship with me. There will come a day where, where I am taken from you. The bridegroom, Jesus, the bridegroom is taken away from you. And then you will fast. Then you will weep. Then you will mourn. Then you will long for the day that I return. And so Jesus is teaching them to, to think about another day. Think about a coming day. And then in Luke chapter 22, Holy Week now, Jesus says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples as they're in the upper room reclining at the table, Jesus says, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You know what this means? This means Jesus is fasting for us. He's waiting for us. He's longing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our Jesus is abstaining from this joyful Passover meal until we are with him in paradise. Yeah, and I don't know how that works, like the separation of time and space and Jesus' resurrected body in heaven. He's waiting for us, and when we die, do we go to heaven? How all that works? We don't know, but here's what Jesus is saying, that the Last Supper, that's why it's called the Last Supper, Communion, the Lord's table. Jesus, with his disciples, he's saying, I, I desired to eat this meal with you because Jesus loves his people. He loves his sons. He loves his daughters. He loves his followers. I've desired to eat this meal with you. And I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus abstaining. Jesus fasting from this meal. Until when? Until the marriage supper of the Lamb which we're told about in Revelation 19. Again, John has a vision, and he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give glory, give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Jesus the bridegroom, us the bride. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous, righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we fast, we ought to remember this glorious meal. And this, this meal is just a pointer. I mean, this meal is just, it's a reminder, it's a symbol of the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples and then he abstains from, he fasts from until we are with him in glory in eternity. That meal's going to be a feast. It's not going to be a cracker and a cup. It's going to be a spread of food with rejoicing and joy. And so church, the encouragement to us is to practice the way of Jesus in fasting, to, to, to fan into flames our 
desire for him. To become more hungry for the bread of life. More thirsty for the living water. So I encourage you to, to do some practice, to practice some fasting over this week. There is a Holy Week devotional down in the lobby, down in Alfred's Hall, which you can pick up. And there's a little devotional here, some different passages of what Jesus was doing every day of the week. And then at the end, there's a little recommended fast for us to do as a church together this week. So I encourage you to pick that up. It was also in the Park Weekly email. Pick up one of those and let's together as a church, let's, let's starve our flesh and feed our spirits as we approach Easter this coming week. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your instruction, for your teaching, for you modeling for us the way in which we should go, the way in which we can live, the way in which we can foster more spiritual depth and intimacy. Lord, we want more of you. I thank you for your, your grace in our lives that when we don't practice fasting, when we fail with fasting, we're still saved, we still have you. But Lord, I, I personally just want a, a deeper hunger and thirst for you. And I know that's what this church wants as well, and so I pray that you would guide us in your way. Help us to practice the things that would produce more Christ-likeness, more holiness. Help us to practice the things that would Help us to embrace more of you. And now as we come to the table, Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on the feast to come, the one in your presence for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.